2009, October 16. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 17, Life on the Edge. Okay, so we've been talking about the nature of life on Earth, and we've been looking at the functional aspects of life. That gets into an awful lot of detail. And what I thought we'd do for, for the lecture today, and your book sort of roughly follows this order, not surprisingly, in the material I feel the least professionally comfortable with, I'm following the order of the book because it makes sense. But one of the things that, that gets to be an interesting question when you're talking about the nature of life on Earth is how extreme can the conditions of life get? How far can you go in terms of environment, temperature, pressure, still heat and cold, salinity, acidity, all of the things that can affect the chemistry of cells? How hard can you push it before you finally basically just say, life just gives up and, and doesn't do anything. And for a long time, people thought that you needed fairly benign environments. But in fact, over the last few decades, a number of great surprises have been found of life existing mostly microscopic where it shouldn't. And these, ob these particular forms of life are known as extremophiles. So today's lecture is about the extremes to which life can reach on Earth. We're going to introduce a class of organisms called extremophiles. These are organisms that have been evolutionarily adapted to live in very extreme environments. We're going to look at extremes of temperature, extremes of, of salinity, extremes of acidity, extremes of ionizing radiation, and even extremes of pressure. And life has managed to find a niche in all of these places. Which leads us to an interesting question that we're going to begin to address. What are the limits of life on Earth? Is there any place on Earth where you don't find life? Or is the planet basically covered everywhere with life in some form or another? And finally, we're going to bring up a question which certainly is interesting, is can there be life without liquid water? And that, that is related to this idea of limits of life on Earth. And we're going to find, in fact, that we do, in fact, have a limit to life on Earth and that is when we go to the very driest places on Earth. When we finally reach the point where there's no liquid water, life finally gives up. So we actually have found, if you will, a hard requirement for the existence of life. So today we're going to talk about life on the edge. How far can we push the environment before life gives up? Now, If we look around the Earth today, not a terrifically sunny day, kind of cold, but basically the conditions on Earth are pretty comfortable for typical forms of life on this planet. The average temperature ranges between about minus 20 and 36 degrees Celsius, which is about minus 4 to about 97 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, these are sort of average temperatures. Obviously, there are outliers to this. For example, it gets down to about you know, minus 50 down at the poles and can get up to 120 out in the, in the far deserts. One of the places I, grew, place I grew up in was the Mojave Desert of California. I remember days where day after day the high temperature was in the 115s Fahrenheit. It's just, that's just plain hot. Pressure, the range of pressure is about a factor of two, between about one atmosphere at sea level to about a half an atmosphere up at about 5,500 meters altitude. That's about the highest altitude that people or most animal life lives. Once you get above that altitude, things start getting a little crazy and you find very bizarre niches. The other aspect of environment is salinity, how much dissolved salt is there in the local water. And even though we think of ocean water as just undrinkably and almost poisonously salty to human beings, in fact, we're only talking about 3.5% salt. There are more extreme examples of salinity that we're going to meet today, but that's the typical range. And remember, the oceans are covered by about 70-odd 70, 70 percent of the Earth's surface. Is saline water, not pure fresh water. Acidity, this is basically whether the uh, liquid is basically acid or alkaline. 
pure water is as, basically as about as neutral as you can get in terms of acidity to maybe slightly alkaline when you go into seawater. So most of the environment we have is in fact not acidic but alkaline. Radiation. Now at this point, it's the first time we've really brought up the subject of radiation. What I mean by radiation here is ionizing radiation, either ultraviolet photons or gamma rays, which are very high energy photons, or x-rays. We can also talk a little bit about particle radiation, things like cosmic rays as well. Radiation is basically any high energy particle whose energy per photon or energy per particle is higher than the binding energy in an atom. So it basically has sufficient energy to break up an atomic molecular bond inside of an atom. Turns out that the radiation background down here at good old sea level, and, and even up to the highest mountains that people live on, not the highest mountains you can reach, is pretty low. It's about three millijoules per kilogram per year of energy absorbed. This is the way we talk about energy dose. We talk about the amount of energy, and the metric unit of energy is the joule. You may be more familiar with the watt. A watt is a joule per second. So basically, you, we absorb, in terms of just ionizing radiation, unless we live in unusual areas, of about three millijoules per kilogram of body mass, which is really per kilogram of water mass, per year. It goes higher if you're one of those people who spends a lot of time in high-altitude aircraft, or as a worker, for example, a radiologist might get a higher radiation dose. But that's the typical background of just general radio, radiation, especially high ionizing radiation in general. And finally, we could talk about the locations that we have on the Earth, and that's pretty simple. If you're not in the land, you're in the ocean. So land or sea. So this picture over here, which is taken from a section of the Amazon rainforest, is actually pretty typical. There's sort of general amount of you know, water around, there's green plants, there's sunlight, temperature's pretty comfortable, not everything's frozen. This is a typical existence for life on, conditions for life on the planet. It's all pretty comfortable, in, on average. Now, this has not always been the case. As we saw way back in the Earth's early history, conditions on the surface were very, very harsh. There was very frequent volcanism. The atmosphere was a mostly carbon dioxide atmosphere. Temperatures could range from very high all the way to pretty cold, down to minus 50 degrees Celsius in a snowball Earth configuration, up as high as 50 degrees Celsius. We start talking about some of the super hot greenhouses that came maybe after the snowball Earth experiences. So we certainly see that in the early Earth, it was a very, very different place. And the question is, if the Earth was very more, much more harsh and hostile in its environment, how did life arise in that? Maybe life can actually handle much harsher conditions than we find today. Well, it turns out in the last few decades, we've begun to, ex to um, discover a fairly large and diverse range of biota that actually have adapted to very extreme environments. And these are called generically extremophiles, for lovers of the extreme. They're organisms adapted to living in these extreme environments. Now, most of these are going to be prokaryotes. They're going to be bacteria and archaea. In fact, a surprising number of the archaea are also extremophiles, or archaea are capable of surviving extreme conditions. There's a handful, however, of eukaryotes. These turn out to be very simple animals. In fact, there's a whole group of tube worms that live around undersea volcanic vents that turn out to be extremophiles. They're adapted to environments that would normally cook a regular fish or tube worm. What's interesting about these, even though they've only been recognized in the last few decades, what we've begun to recognize is they're extremely abundant. There's been various estimates, and they range widely, but the numbers that you often hear people writing about is they could constitute between a third and a half 
of the Earth's biomass. Now, when we think about life on Earth, I want to stop with that particular um, number here for a second. We have a certain provinciality in our view of life. We always tend to view life in terms of what might be called the megafauna. Big animals, us, things that walk around. Elephants, bears, lions, tigers, people, birds, things like that. Those are really the megafauna of this planet. And they are a very small minority of the total biomass, the total, total mass added up of all living organisms on the planet. Most of the biomass on the Earth is bacteria, is microscopic. So that's, for, for example, one of the reasons why, when you look at, for example, the, um, what I would call the, uh, the popular controversies that sur surround things like the theory of evolution and the description of natural evolution by natural selection, is when you look at most of the animal life that most of us think of as animals and plants, they are very slowly evolving creatures because they go through one generation in the same time as a human lifetime. So we don't see the effects of evolution on those populations. But this is a highly provincial point of view because, in fact, most of the life on Earth is microscopic. It goes through hundreds to thousands of generations, sometimes per year. And that's where all the evolution, and that's where all the biodiversity is. So when people go on about biodiversity in the rainforests and places like that, they're talking about actually a very thin sliver of the real biodiversity on this planet. And so when you're starting to talk about, oh, well, these are the normal conditions for life, and I give all the temperatures and pressures and salinities, and then you say, well, where does most of the biomass on this planet live? And you find out that a half to a third live in extreme environments where we or things like us could not survive, it kind of starts changing your mind about what we should be thinking about when we define life generically. And that's why the study of extremophiles has become so interesting. And it's also why it's so interesting from the astrobiological point of view, because it greatly broadens the number of possible environments in which we might be plausibly looking for life. So what my goal is today is to look through the various kinds of extremophiles and see what kinds of interesting clues we might pick up as to what we might go looking for. Maybe we shouldn't be looking for comfortable, sunny, warm, wet spots. We should be looking for someplace else. There may be an awful lot in some places we wouldn't normally have looked. Now, the other point is this, and this will, will bear mostly on what we're going to talk about next week when we talk about the origins of life on Earth. These extremophiles may, in fact, have been the very first forms of life on our planet. So places like Grand Prismatic Hot Springs in Yellowstone National Forest or the Dead Sea in Israel, which look like rare, forbidden, forbidding places, may in fact be the remnants of some of the cradles of life on this planet. So let's go through the various kinds of extreme environments. What is it about those environments that makes them extreme from the point of view of life? life as we've been describing it over the last few days, and then look at the ways in which forms of life have adapted to those environments. So let's start with temperature. Let's start with hot temperatures. High temperatures turn out to be bad for most organisms. We're all familiar with the process of pasteurization, of boiling something to kill the microorganisms in it. It's a common form of sterilizing things to keep you know, bad things like cholera and other, things like, and other diseases like that from going through the human population. Why does that work? Why does boiling creatures work? Well, the reason is that high temperatures tend to be bad for organism survival for a number of reasons. For example, if you boil a plant, you've all done this. You probably boiled a vegetable or seen, or in the dorms, they certainly boil the hell out of the vegetables. What does it do? They turn from nice bright and green to kind of gray and icky. Well, one of the things that high temperatures does is it degrades chlorophyll. And if you degrade chlorophyll, you shut down photosynthesis. You shut down the ability of that green plant to make food and therefore you kill it. 
There's some more subtle things that heat does. For example, it decreases the solubility of carbon dioxide and oxygen in water. Fish need oxi scrub oxygen dissolved in water out of water to their gills. That's how they get oxygen for respiration. Certain classes of chemoautotrophs scrub carbon dioxide out of dissolved water and use that as part of their metabolic cycle. If you change the, increase the temperature of water, the solubility of, of these gases goes down. You can hold less gas per unit liter of water. This is a good example. This is, again, sort of kitchen science you can do. Take two bottles of soda pop. Put one in the refrigerator and leave one out on the counter. Oh, heck, why not just let it set it out in the sun and warm it up? Which one do you want to open? Well, if you open the cold one, it goes and a little bit of fizzy comes out. What happens if you open the warm one? You open it like this, and it blows out. Why? Because of decreased solubility of gases. Very simple observation we all know about. So what this does is it affects the load of metabolically important gases, oxygen or carbon dioxide in the water. As temperature goes up, it just gets worse. At the chemical level, another thing that heating up an organism does is it starts screwing around with the proteins. Remember we said earlier this week that proteins are the functional units of the biochemistry of cells. So if you screw around with proteins or you change their function, you can interrupt their cellular function. One of these forms of structure is that what makes proteins work is they kind of fold up into little three-dimensional shapes. And that's what makes, for example, an enzyme have its certain special chemical properties. If you heat a protein, what that does is often those proteins unwind. That unwinding is called denaturing. If you denature them and you unwind them, you no longer have the active sites the way they are, and the protein simply stops functioning. An example of denaturing protein is... Egg yolks, egg whites. Egg whites are 90% water and 10% proteins, basically ova albumin and uh, another albumin, um, which is, are two different proteins. What happens when you take a clear egg white and heat it up? It turns cloudy. What you're seeing are those proteins denaturing and coagulating. We play the same game, for example, in, in the kitchen. There's a lot of proteins, for example, inside of, of milk cream. You heat the cream slowly, you unwind the proteins, and then you freeze it, and you make ice cream. If you just froze cream directly without denaturing the proteins, you'd get ice milk and something nasty. So we do this kind of denaturing trick all the time, but when you denature a protein, you basically stop it. You cease it from functioning. So heating up an organism is bad. You can cut off its, uh, one of the chemistry, chemistry that's useful for getting food, in this case energy from sunlight, if you have a chemoautotroph, you can cut down its accessibility to food, basically the raw carbon dioxide it needs for metabolism. And if you heat it up enough, you basically begin to destroy the chemical function of the cells. But that said, there are a class of organisms that have adapted to high temperature environment, and they are called thermophiles, heat lovers. They've been able to thrive at temperatures as high as 45 degrees Celsius. They're found mostly in hot springs and deep sea hydrothermal vents. For example, this picture down here is an undersea photograph near um, a region of uh, down in the, the mid-Atlantic Ridge where the two crustal plates are pulling apart and there's heat, hot magma and other stuff coming up from below in the earth. Water gets down there, boils, and comes blowing out. This water can be extremely hot down here. It turns out if you look at the type of bacteria that live on the rocks down here around these hydrothermal vents and you pull them apart, 
sort of characters here like Pyrolobus fumari is one example of one of these, what you find is that they've, they've evolved to have proteins and enzymes that actually don't denature at high temperatures. They actually maintain their structure and therefore their function. Furthermore, there's a whole group of creatures that have been able to, they're chemoautotrophs, that have actually been able to thrive in these environments. And the reason is because they live via chemosynthesis. These deep sea vents produce a lot of hydrogen sulfide or iron, and sometimes if they're near what are called clathrate dumps, they produce methane, which is normally poisonous. But in fact, oxidation of hydrogen sulfide or iron or various metabolism on methane can actually provide energy, just in the same way that sunlight provides energy to a, to a photosynthetic plant. So they're able to make use of the unusual chemical environment in, contact, in, in concert with having evolved these heat-resistant proteins and enzymes, and in fact, they thrive quite well. So thermophiles are examples of where you can push the chemistry, but only in a pretty tiny niche. They tend to be fairly small creatures, although there are a certain class of tube worms that also seem to be able to survive. They have proteins inside of them that, don't, that denature at much higher temperatures than the temperatures they happen to be found in. Now, why thermophiles really got people's attention when they were first discovered in deep sea vents is that thermophiles may in fact be among the first forms of life on the planet. This is a, one of the many variations on the phylogenetic tree of life. Remember, the phylogenetic tree divides up life forms into bacteria, archaea, and eukarya. Where you carry out here somewhere in our animals. <coughs> this is the tree drawn. Remember, the length, of the length of the arms in the tree here are the lengths of genetic differences between different members of the tree. Well, now what I like this picture of is for is what, what you've got drawn here with the color coding is coding for the maximum temperature at which growth is allowed. 60, 75, 90 degrees Celsius. Bear in mind, 100 degrees Celsius is where water begins to boil at sea level. Well, notice what happens down here at the root of the branches going into the archaea, the bacteria, and uh, bacteria, especially the lower branches of the archaea, well up into the archaea. In fact, you have to get out to 60 degrees, 60 degrees Celsius, you find creatures that are adapted to very warm temperatures indeed, are very common among the archaea. And in fact, the further you go back, the further you go back to more and more primitive organisms that share a lot of genetics, they all seem to show a great deal of heat resistance. So that's a clue that in fact, the first common ancestors that may have emerged on Earth may have been life near, the, near things like undersea vents. They may have been chemoautotrophs that were also thermophiles. Not all, but a lot of them seem to show the signs of being related to that in the present day. So it's one clue as to where we probably would go looking on a brand new planet for the first emergence of life. So these are extremely harsh, harsh environments, but that's not an unusual environment in the primitive Earth during, for example, the end of the Hadean and the early Archaean period. So these are places where we should be going to look for the first signs of life on our planet. Any questions about thermophiles? That's heat. Why do we drive it the other way? Remember that the Earth wasn't always a hot, steamy place. Sometimes it was snowball Earth. Can life survive? Why isn't life didn't completely die if there was a snowball Earth event two billion years ago that froze the planet down to a, you know, a kilometer down in the oceans and some of the more extreme versions of that? Cold is also bad for creatures, the other end of the temperature scale. Cold does all kinds of things. For example, freezing can begin to damage cells. You get a phenomenon called superosmosis, where the cells basically come apart and burst. If you've ever frozen like lettuce, 
and then you try to thaw it out. You don't get nice green lettuce anymore. You get sort of green grain mush. What you've done is you basically burst all the cell walls because of the effect of osmosis has basically caused enough pressure inside of them to basically burst the cells from the inside out. The other thing that happens is you get colder, the various fluid components of cells and in between cellular life get thicker and thicker. Think about how water gets more viscous or oils get more viscous as you get colder and colder. Why, for example, you use a different weight of oil in the wintertime than summertime in your car, or at least should be. So if you decrease, in, increase what's called the viscosity, the thickness of a liquid, you basically decrease the mobility of nutrients and waste. You start basically making it difficult for new nutrients to be brought to the creatures, and you make it difficult for those creatures to wash away their waste. And pretty soon you can actually end up with either starvation or poisoning in your own waste at low temperatures. Finally, when you really start getting cold, proteins and enzymes do their chemical thing, but they do their chemical thing in relatively warm liquid environments. As it gets colder, the proteins and enzymes start getting stiff. And if they get stiff, you start inhibiting their function. So it goes in two directions with temperature. And the proteins, which are the basic functional elements, are very temperature sensitive. Make them too hot and they unwind and cease to function completely. But on the other hand, make them too cold and they're too stiff and they can't do their chemical function of, of mating with other chemicals and forming, for example, in it, the case of enzymes, the sites of chemistry to go on inside cells. Or you can no longer uh, fold up. For example, if you make a protein, you've got to have that protein fold up into its three-dimensional shape to make it functional. If it's too cold, it may not fold or f may not fold correctly. And so the protein never goes into its functional form. So cold can be as bad as anything else. This shows a sequence here of sort of a poor Mac-drawn cartoon. As you go from 0 degrees Celsius to minus 20 degrees Celsius, the white here is the formation of ice. Superosmosis begins to draw liquid water out of the cells, desiccating and bursting them. And eventually, you reach the point where you start actually freezing the cell matter altogether. So it looks like cold is pretty bad for living organisms, too. But life, as it will, sort of t tends to find a way through the process of evolutionary adaptation. A little kink in the protein structure of a particular cell might give it an advantage over those cells that are freezing and dying and blowing up from the inside from superosmosis. There may be a small number of, of organisms, because of kinks in their genetic code, develop the ability to actually survive in these environments. And of course, they will thrive and become the only organisms in these environments. Well, the opposite of a thermophile, which is a heat lover, is a psychrophile, an ice lover. These are organisms that can thrive at temperatures below, minus below 15 degrees Celsius. They tend to be found in glaciers, deep in the Arctic and Antarctic ice. They're found in snow and soil. They're also found in the deep oceans, where, where temperatures can get very, very cold. What we find inside of these is that the enzymes and proteins inside of these tend to be very, very flexible. They can still operate take their three-dimensional shape, fold up just right, at temperatures where most proteins in terrestrial life have just given up and basically just stopped moving. The other thing that's kind of interesting, one of these creatures, for example, Desophobobble gelida, gelida is ice, the same root as gelato, um, have developed something as equivalent to a protein antifreeze. Remember, you put ethylene glycol in water in your radiator to keep the water in your radiator from freezing during the wintertime. If you introduce chemical contaminants into water, you can often change the freezing point. Turns out there are protein combinations that also act like an antifreeze. These cells just happen to have those proteins. 
They normally don't seem to do much. They may f- perform some other function, but when you drop the temperature, cells that have those don't freeze. Cells that, do have, cells that don't have them freeze solid. Cells that do have them freeze at a much lower temperature, and so they can survive and reproduce, and pretty soon you, those become the dominant pieces of the population. Now, a few of these turn out to be eukaryotes. This is one of the places, again, they're mostly going to be bacteria. But there are a handful of these things, like snow algae, that's sort of what the red snow is up here, are actually able to grow on the surface of snow. This is a photograph taken in Greenland, for example, where these snow algae often appear. They even live by photosynthesis. They're sitting on the surface of the snow, they're sitting against ice, and yet there's just enough sunlight to power their chemistry, and they've got nice flexible enzymes and protein antifreeze, so they're able to still function, even when their temperature is right hovering above freezing. So again, we've pushed the limits in terms of temperature. We've gone into places which are extremely challenging from the point of view of protein structure and cell chemistry, and yet the forces of natural selection at work within nature are able to allow certain creatures that go into a certain direction in their evolution can actually survive in these environments, and actually not only to survive, but they actually thrive. They're common enough that you can see them on a macroscopic scale, like the snow algae here. So even extremes of temperature There are limits, of course. If you get too hot, you begin to get to the point where the heat begins to destroy chemical bonds. Or you get so cold that you really do even freeze antifreeze. I mean, even if you put antifreeze in water, there's a limit. There's a point where antifreeze will itself freeze. The antifreeze mixtures, for example, that they sell in Ohio are not the same ones they sell in Alaska. And certainly not the same stuff we have to use in instruments we send to the Antarctic. Ultimately, you just run out of steam. But for the conditions we find on the Earth, even over the last few billion years, there are still places for these creatures to exist and carry on life, even in environments that would kill larger creatures. That's temperature. Let's look at something else. Look at the composition of water. If we look at the oceans, one of the characteristics of oceans is they're saline. They carry about 3.5% salt. If you put too much salt in something, that's also bad for most organisms. What a lot of salt does is it basically produces very high osmotic pressures. It wants to draw, basically if you have a high concentration of salt on the outside and a low concentration of dissolved salt on the inside, you want to reach an equilibrium, it draws the pure water out to it to try to reach some kind of equality. So if you have a cell which has got water mostly filling the sac of its cell membrane and you put it in a saline environment, the saline environment will literally suck the water out of the cell. If you suck the water out of the cell, you desiccate or dry it out. If you draw out the water, you start screwing around with the cell's chemistry because the water is part of the solvent that allows the chemistry to happen. The other thing that can happen in the presence of salt is proteins can sometimes begin to aggregate in the presence of salinity. It's what's called salting out. If your proteins are all clumping up, they're not going to function normally, and that will often kill the cell. The other thing it does is that putting a lot of salinity in the water begins to give something else for the oxygen to do in the water. The oxygen is now sitting there screwing around with the salt ions and is not available to be respirated into the cells to use for metabolism. So you limit the availability of any dissolved oxygen in 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 the water when you run the salinity up. So there's all kinds of things that happen that are really, really bad when you run the high salinity up. Now surprisingly, however, life finds a way. And the way is something, a group of of creatures called halophiles, halo being for haline, it's a word for salt. These can live in water with 10 times the salinity of the oceans. We're talking about salinity getting up around 35, 40% 
the water content. And there are places like that, for example, the Great Salt Lake in Utah and the Dead Sea in Israel. What they do, the way they work, is they actually end up having cells that contain extra ions. These extra ions reduce the osmotic pressure and therefore reduce the effect of immersing these things in the, in the high saline environment. Basically, the insides of the cells are already salty in the chemical sense of the word. They've got a lot of ions running around. And so it stops the flow of water out of the cells. They're able to hold on to the liquids they need for chemistry. Now, this is actually rather interesting. Here's a group of these things. They're called uh, Deni... Dunallela salina. These turn out to be rather interesting little microorganisms. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole line, for example, of um, cosmetics made from the salts of the Dead Sea um, that contain Dunaella, among other of their, their contents, um, which is where these may have, some people may have encountered them. What's interesting is that these creatures are able to live in actually a great deal of, of abundance. These are actually photosynthetic creatures. And they're able to survive just fine inside of the, these highly saline environments. The implications of this for looking on life on other worlds are two discoveries that have been made in the last few years. One is a considera considerable amount of salts on the surface of the planet Mars. If Mars actually had water early in its history, that water was very likely very highly saline. It was very high salt seas, higher than we would find on the Earth. Most people would say, oh, it's too salty for life to live. But we have examples on the Earth of life that can survive under, halophiles that can survive under these salty conditions. The other possibility is deep under the ices of the moon of Jupiter, Europa. The other possibility is that that should also be a fairly saline environment. It has to do with the chemistry of water under ice. And so the other possibility is maybe the conditions on the early planet Mars or underneath the ice of Europa, if there are pockets of liquid water, could be highly saline. And so we might, might, not saying we know yet, be possibility of life existing, which is similar to terrestrial halophiles. So that's the reason why we're, we find them so interesting from an astrobiology context. So you increase the salt, you increase the danger to the creature, but there are ways in which these creatures can exist. So we've covered heat and cold, salinity, Let's now add another area, acidity. The acidity of an aqueous solution is measured by a number called the pH, which as near as I can tell, it means, used to mean parts hydrogen or power of hydrogen. People don't actually cannot agree what pH originally means. The Swedish guy who defined it in the 19th century didn't clue us in. But it's the common way to express the acidity of a particular environment. Low pH solutions, those with a low pH number, are extremely acidic. Low pH means the system can basically take up electrons. If you go the other direction and you have a high pH, you're in a system that can give up electrons. And so you have the two different poles of electron chemistry in the presence of acidity. Basically, acidity is all about electron transport. And remember, electrons are the currency of chemistry. So the center of the pH scale runs from 0 to 14. The center is at pure water with a pH of 7. To give you an idea of sort of where pHs go, Pure, pure water is about pH of 7. Seawater is slightly alkaline at a pH of 8. Baking soda is pretty alkaline at 9. The Great Salt Lake is very saline, and the Dead Sea up around pH of 10. And then when you get up to pH 11, 12, 13, and 14, you're talking Windex, soapy water, bleach, and Drano. Drano is basically alkaline, extremely alkaline. That's in the direction of positive pH. The Lower pH of an, of an aqueous solution is increasing acidity. So, for example, pH of 7, again, is water. 
Urine and saliva are pH of about 6. Our, our saliva is slightly um, acidic. Black coffee, without any cream or sugar and no decaf, is about pH of 5. Tomato juice is about pH of 4. Orange juice, getting tart, is pH of 3. Lemon juice, really tart, is pH of 2. And then you get into things that are nasty, like stomach acid is pH of 1, and battery acid is up at pH of 0. So you can start seeing that you get a range from, you know, most water in creatures is around pH of 7. Tomatoes, oranges, and lemons seem to have perfectly operating cell bodies with high pHs. The stomach uses acid to dissolve foods and take chemicals apart at pH of 1, and battery acid, well, that just is bad things. So you think acidity might be a narrow range for life, and the answer is no, no, life figures it out again. A whole class of creatures have been found called acidophiles, acid lovers, that can be adapted to extremely acidic environments. Some of these have been found, for example, in, in like mine pools or places near volcanic areas where there's very high natural acidity in the water that have been found to survive in pH of less than 2. So we're talking about bacteria that can survive in the presence of lemon juice or battery acid. What they do is that normally what happens is the high acidity means a, a tremendous um, accessibility to electrons. That completely screws up the chemistry. But if you can neutralize that acidity inside the cell body itself, then that doesn't go and screw up the, uh, the chemistry. And so what you find is, in fact, the chemistry of the inside of these creatures effectively neutralizes those interiors. So it's like they're little pockets of neutrality inside these highly acidic environments. They suck through the nutrients they need, but they neutralize the stuff coming in. Others have gone even further. They've evolved to contain acid-stable proteins. Again, here we come back with the proteins. Kitchen science you can do, okay? Easy enough with an egg. Egg is a good source. Egg white is a good source of, of, of proteins to play around with. Okay? If you heat up proteins, it coagulates, you get egg whites turning really white. There's another little experiment you could do. Take that same egg white, before heating it up, put in some lemon juice or vinegar. It will suddenly turn cloudy. You begin to get changes in the structure of the egg white. In fact, certain types of foods exploit that, begins to unwind the proteins a little bit. If you want to make a really good meringue, you put a little bit of lemon juice in there to unwind the proteins before you whip up the egg whites. Okay. The same thing happens inside of cell function. You induce acidity inside of a protein function. You basically begin to unwind the proteins and you screw up their function. But if you can make an acid-stable protein, you get things like ferroplasma acid or monis, which can basically survive in a puddle of battery acid because they simply have the chemistry to offset the effect of all the acidity. So, heat, cold, saline, acid. What else can we do to organisms to make life bad for them? Well, one thing we can do is we can blast them with radiation, or more specifically ionizing radiation. Ultraviolet radiation, gamma rays, x-rays, hard particle radiation from things like cosmic rays or radioactive decay. Turns out DNA, this beautiful molecule that's used to, to carry the coating of life, is extremely susceptible to radiation damage. For example, you can get minor damage, occurs all the time, a, a high-energy photon, a gamma ray comes in and busts up one of the base pair sets, or busts a hole in the backbone. Turns out DNA has biochemical repair mechanisms that go on all the time, that proofread the DNA to keep the error rate from getting so high that things just come apart. But if you can do minor damage and you get self-repair, eventually you can overwhelm those repair biochemical repair mechanisms and you can actually get lethal damage. 
Lethal damage is where you so, so damage the DNA coding that the cell basically ceases to function. It can no longer produce the RNA and proteins it needs for cell function. The cell just goes and dies. There's a middle ground, however, that turns out to be the problem, and that's non-lethal damage. Not so small that it can repair, not so hard that it kills the cell, but small enough that you begin to bust up the code a little bit, and the cell still survives and produces a radiation-induced mutation into the population. And these are the kinds of radiation-induced uh, mutations that can cause all kinds of strange things to happen. Okay, maybe not seven-eyed fish near the nuclear power plant, but you can get some pretty strange stuff going on. The way we measure radiation dose is by energy absorbed per kilogram of body mass. A typical medical x-ray, so you get, you know, like a chest x-ray or something like that, is about two millijoules per kilogram of absorbed energy. Clearly, that's not a good thing, but it's... You know, it's a quote, you can basically, in a medical x-ray, you can get about the same radiation dose you accumulate over the course of a year, just from the natural background. So that's where people try to keep it safe as much as possible. To kill somebody with radiation, you've got to zap them with about 10 joules per kilogram. In round numbers, that's, uh, let's see, 10 to the minus 3, 10, so that's about 10,000 times more than a medical x-ray will kill a human being. So, for example, being in the presence of the wrong part of a nuclear power station, um, being in the wrong place when a nuclear weapon goes off, that's the sort of thing that will kill you in lethality to humans. If you want to kill something like a bacterium, like E. coli, you've got to crank it up another factor of six. You've got to hit it with about 60 joules per kilogram to basically radio-sterilize anything containing E. coli bacteria. People do this, for example, you can sterilize a hamburger by basically hitting it with 60, kilojou 60 joules per kilogram of, of the mass of hamburger. Irradiating it, you can actually sterilize it. So you'd think that basically radiation sterilization is really hardcore. Basically, you can kill things by getting right down to the DNA level. If you will, it gets down to metal, or in this case, biochemistry, and wipes out the very molecule of life itself. But there are a very rare class of radio-resistant organisms that can survive ridiculously high doses of ionizing radiation. And here's the all-time winner, Deinococcus radiodurans. It can survive doses of 5,000 joules per kilogram. That's 500 times the lethal dosage on a human being. Some of these, in fact, can absorb up to 15,000 joules per kilogram with 37% viability without mutation. The reason they can do this is because inside their genetic machinery, they carry four to ten copies of the complete genome for building the creature. So you go in and hit it with enough radiation to blow away half of the, of the DNA in the thing. The other half contains a complete copy. All you need is one to make another copy of, of Deinococcus radiodurans. It's also got extremely efficient DNA repair mechanisms. Biologists absolutely love this creature because it it's basically takes the cell repair machinery, the genetic repair machinery found in all cells, and cranks it up by many orders of magnitude. And so it allows us to study this in great detail. This creature is amazing. Not only is it a radio-resistant organism, it's a thermophile, a psychrophile. It's an acidophile. It can handle high acidity, high salinity, high temperature, low temperature, and high pressure and high humidity. It's so tough that the original biologist who discovered this nicknamed it Conan the Bacterium. Um, this is really badass stuff. It was discovered in experiments sterilizing cans of food. 
it survived radio sterilization of like a can of tuna or something like that. Luckily, it's not pathogenic. It doesn't seem to do anything except, you know, just multiply. It doesn't do bad things to people, which is good because you really, you really don't want things like this loose in the end. That would be the mother of all colds. Um, and fine, so, that, so we can find life that can survive even absurd conditions. But there's places where you say, all right, we found a limit for life. Let's go inside of rocks where it's high pressure and high temperature. Nothing can live in a rock, right? Sure. Sure they can. It's called an endolith. <laughs> These were discovered about you know, 10, 20 years ago. These are organisms that live inside rocks in the cracks between mineral grains. They've been found as low as three kilometers below the surface of the earth. Most of them are chemoautotrophs. They scrub up carbon from the surrounding rock and they use the chemistry from the metals in the rock to do their metabolism. Now, they probably split their cells once a century. So this is not life in the fast lane, no matter how extreme it is. Here's a couple of these. These things were dug up from ocean basalts. These are basically solidified lavas in the Indian Ocean seafloor, 1.2 kilometers below the seafloor in a deep core. There are these things living there. They're about 50 microns across. What's amazing is, and there's a series of these endoliths, see sort of the, the greenish stuff there. Those are endoliths found inside of a deep crustal rock that came up down in Antarctica. We don't know how many endoliths there are on the planet. This was the last place anyone was going to go looking for life, is cracking open rocks. The fact that we found as much as we have could estimate, no one's got good estimates, but the total biomass in endoliths could in fact exceed that of every single form of life on the surface, including all the bacteria and archaea. So this stuff is crazy. So this is the extremes to which life can go. We take biologically active systems that are capable of reproduction, that use DNA for reproduction, that they have metabolism described as you know, chemoautotrophs for the most part. Some of them, in fact, are slightly photosynthetic. But they still survive. So it tells us that the niches for life are far, far vaster than we'd ever expected. But how hard can we push it? Can we find an environment where life can't make it? Well, let's go look at the uh, one of the factors that we haven't addressed yet is that every single one of these extreme creatures is high temperature water, low temperature water or ice, high salinity water, high alkalinity water, high acidity water, maybe just water, a little moisture trapped in a high pressure rock or high radiation. But notice the common denominator in every case is water, water, water. What if we go to a place where there's no water? Can life survive without water? Well, to search for that, we have to go to the driest places on the planet. And the driest place is in northern Chile in a place called the Atacama Desert. It's the driest place outside the Arctic areas. It's basically a virtually sterile desert, about 100 times more arid than the Death Valley of California, which was very close to where I grew up. And I thought that was pretty arid. This is a picture over here of the Atacama. There's nothing growing here. Okay. It sits in a double rain shadow between the Andes and the coastal mountains. Some of these areas have had no rainfall recorded for some, in some parts for the last four centuries. And that's only because people started keeping records four centuries ago. It may have been longer than that. If you look at the geological till in this area, there haven't even been frozen water or glaciers in some of these places for the last almost two million years. This is as dry as it gets on the earth. This place is like the moon. 
In fact, here's a place called the Valle de la Luna, or the Valley of the Moon in the Atacama. When the Spanish conquistadors crossed this, coming down from Peru for the conquest of Chile, they ran into this place and they must have wondered where the hell they were at. Um, Alonso de Arcia, who was actually one of the uh, conquistadors who came out of Chile, who wrote the La Arcana in 1569, commented that, Towards Atacama, near the deserted coast, you see a land without men, where there is not a bird, nor a beast, nor a tree, nor any vegetation. It absolutely stunned them. They'd never seen a place almost completely sterile of life. And I always wonder when I've visited places like this, how the hell did they cross this on foot? That's why they lost about half their people crossing the place. So maybe this is where we should look. Maybe we should go to the harshest environment on the planet. In 2003, a group of um, researchers went down to the Atacama carrying the same biochemical machinery, biochemical testing machinery that was flown on the Viking 1 and Viking 2 Mars life search experiments that came up with no answers. <laughs> they put it on this rover and they drove it around and they found areas where there was no culturable bacteria in the soil down to a depth of 10 centimeters. So almost a foot down. And you didn't find squat. Nothing. But basically the soil was as close to sterile as you could make it naturally without having to do it yourself. Two of the samples where they did find something had no DNA inside them. These things were dead. They didn't have the ability to reproduce. They had no hereditary information at all. You found a husk. A later study, however, found that when you got down to about 30 centimeters, actually about a foot down, you started getting into trapped moisture layers. And all of a sudden, you found viable bacteria. So life can exist in the harshest environments on the planet if there's at least a little bit of liquid water. Once you suck all the water out of the place... That's it. You end life completely. So we finally found the limit, ultimate dryness. So why do we care? Well, obviously the reason we care is if you study the extremes of life, it tells us what we should be looking for elsewhere. It means the range of environments where we can expect life is far vaster than what we would get just looking around us on the surface. This may have been the hint of what the first forms of life are like on Earth, a topic we'll bring up next week. But we have found a limit, and that limit is we have never found an organism that can exist without liquid water, which tells us that one of the important places to look for life is look for where liquid water exists. That's our first clue. Any questions? If not, have a very good weekend. I'll see you all on Monday.